With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz. What I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. But before I get started, I want to give a shout out to Human Octane. If you're the kind of person who pushes the limit, then you've got to check out Human Octane Apparel training and racing apparel designed by OCR athletes, and these guys just get it. Everything they make drives lightning fast, has zippered pockets, is abrasion resistant in high contact areas without bulky padding. I've gotten to know these guys, and trust me, they're going to out-innovate the competition when it comes to OCR gear. Check them out at humanoctane.com. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. All right, here we are once again. I've been working really, really hard to finally get Dr. Emily back on the show with me. Those of you that have followed my podcast know that she's my go-to gal when it comes to anything to do with structural integrity, ground contact, foot, anything to do with effective movement patterns. And Emily is a podiatrist. She is the founder of Evidence-Based Fitness Academy. There, I mean, we can go for 15 minutes just talking about all the things that Emily's doing, but suffice to say, it's a limited amount of time that we have, so what I want to do is just go right ahead and say, Emily, say hello to folks. Hi, welcome. Thank you uh, for having me on your podcast again. That was an honor. Well, it was interesting. You know, we, we spoke of it early on, but it's been five years that you and I have been going back and forth. I know. It makes me feel old. <laughs> Dude, don't even start. <laughs> you know, by the way, if you want to, I'm heading to Mexico in December to celebrate my 65th birthday. Oh, nice. No, not nice. You're supposed to, people say, usually when you tell people you're getting that old, instead of saying, hey, happy birthday, they say, oh, congratulations. Oh, that you made it. Yeah. Used to be they would say things like, oh, congratulations. But now that I'm going to hit 65, they pause. So they go, oh, congratulations. <laughs> it's almost like they're dumbfounded. They don't know really what the appropriate answer would be to that. Uh, or uh, Anyway. So, Emily, as we discussed prior to going live here, what I'm hoping to accomplish here in the next little bit is I want to talk about the sequence of events that occurs when we initiate ground contact as we run and what would be the appropriate thing to do. Or we, we spoke of it as being the preferred thing to do. I'm not even going to talk about appropriate. Let's talk about preferred thing to do. And I believe, and you can slap me around if you need to, but I believe that there is a better way to make ground contact when we're running. And I think ultimately in the course of making ground contact in this preferred method, we can create more generation of force, more power, and also become more stable and resistant to injury. Would you agree that, that's, that there's a place like that? Absolutely. That's, okay. that's really the, the key to running injury-free or prevention running-related injuries is that relationship between the ground and the, the body, the foot. Okay, now you corrected me, and see, this is why I keep coming back to you over the last five years is because I'm a little thick. It takes me a little while to learn things, but um, you had done a good job clearing some things up for me today that I had not thought about um, because, and I think a lot of people, when they think about what occurs when they are running or landing, they're thinking in, in terms of contractile forces. And the contractive forces people typically speak of 
are muscular contractile forces. So in other yep. words, and you corrected me, the eccentric loading, which I would expect it to have been elongation of musculature and then ultimately isometric contraction where things stabilize and then the shortening phase where you are accelerating and pushing off the ground. So changes in muscle. And you had corrected me by telling me that, in fact, what is occurring is the muscles are isometric through this whole series of sequencing. And what really is changing in length is the myofascia, which is where the change in length is really occurring. So could you kind of do a better job with what I just said and explain what, in fact, we're talking about? Sure. So I think everyone who's listening often thinks of, okay, we when we're running, jumping, dynamic, you're going to be decelerating. And then when you decelerate, essentially what you're doing is you're storing the potential energy for then the acceleration, which is the next phase. So typically we think of deceleration as eccentrics, which is what you were saying. So we're going through an eccentric, which is a lengthening phase. And then you're going into a concentric, which is your power or your shortening phase. And so people think that that's kind of the, the, the way that you want to train for running, jumping, walking, dynamic, rhythmic, that's the key thing here, movement. However, what research shows is that the muscles are actually contracting isometrically. So they're staying the same length. And anytime you create an isometric contraction, there's no shortening or lengthening of the muscle fibers. You're essentially creating a stiffening response and an increase in tension. And then what's moving and allowing the lengthening and the shortening that we typically think of our muscles doing is actually the fascia. So why that's important to understand is that you have to train your muscles then for more of an isometric quick stiffening. And then you have to train your fascia to be a rubber band. And that is the most important thing. And the, the rubber band and the elasticity and kind of think like a kangaroo jumping around, that's really the fascia that's allowing them or us to be very springy. And it's actually not housed within the muscles. It's, it's pivotal to changing your programming or your training to understanding that concept. Right. Now, what I believe to be the case, and, and I, you really opened my mind this morning to a lot of thoughts, but I, essentially I think I was on the right path. It's just that I was thinking in terms of the musculature and the fascia operating as one, where in fact they're not. They're, they're operating independently of, of each other. So in other words, as you suggested and what I've learned from some of the things I've read that you've written and some of the work of uh, Dr. Nig. Uh, this mm -hmm. muscle tuning theory is essentially all about how the muscles are isometrically contracting to dampen the, the vibrations that occur when we make ground contact and the elasticity of the fascia is what's allowing us to, to actually move the joints, right? Yes, exactly. So if you do not have sufficient stiffness in the muscle or the isometric, you're, you're not allowing the fascia to, to move. Like the fascia needs to be on a stiff, stable base to slide almost like a sleeve over the muscle. Um, so they, they, they kind of dance among each other. And most injuries that I see in my office with runners um, and endurance athletes and such is directly related to insufficient stiffness, and then they stress the way that their fascia acts like a rubber band. Right. Now, and what kind of bears truth to all of this is that you never really talk about muscle injuries. It's always... Uh, connective tissue disorders, right? So there's a, a plantar fasciitis, for example, or the IT band. All, all this is connective tissue. It's really not got to do with the muscle, right? But it, exactly. So that's what supports this theory by Dr. Nig and this approach of looking at um, impact injuries or just the, the training of the loading response because of exactly what you said. To me, that just kind of validates that exactly what we're saying is like, ah, oh, that's on point, makes sense. 
Now, so getting back to the sequence of events and the way you would make contact with the ground, I teach people that they should initiate ground contact. You know, the, where it gets kind of edgy is when you talk about forefoot to midfoot. People get confused with that. But let's just, for the sake of argument, say the front of your foot. And so what happens is as you're starting to, to find the ground and then you're starting to take on load, you're actually causing a stretch reflex, right, up through the, the connective tissue. And all the while, according to what you're saying, is there's this isometric contraction in the musculature to dampen the vibration upon ground contact. And then that energy that's being received from this lengthening of the fascia gets to a place where once your foot is entirely in contact with the ground, your knee is pretty well just in line with or even ahead of your great toe. Now you have good ankle flexion. So this whole system down there, I guess it's the subtalar joint, is kind of locking down. You're getting stable. This is what you refer to as foot-to-core sequencing, right? You get to this place where this loading effect from the ground rides all the way up into your hip, and you have this column of stability you've created, which sets you up for a very opportune moment to create this generate or harvest this generation of elastic energy to create force. Yes, exactly. And what I want to add to that is that I want listeners to understand that this has to be happening before your foot even strikes the ground. So, Excuse me for cutting you off. But I wanted to tell you that this is the thing that I had the hardest time wrapping my head around for years. You told me this, and I'm like, okay, yeah, fine, sure. And I was having a hard time with it. I'm not going to lie to you. But since, and even recently, I have been very vocal in explaining that there, this does, in fact, occur. And my analogy that I use when I try to explain this to people, I'll have somebody standing in front of me in group, and I'll say, okay, I'm getting ready to punch you in the stomach. And just that information that's being taken on already begins the sequence of events. The person will start to contract the, the musculature and their abdominal wall to prepare for this impending impact, right? Yep. So it's kind of like that, right? Yeah, no, it is, it's exactly that, that there's always a anticipation of what's going to happen. And... How, how I get people to understand this a little bit more is, you know, kind of two things is that you, you need to always be in control of your environment. Your body, your nervous system wants to be in control of your environment. So it's either considered your preactive or your anticipatory, or you would be reactive. And just looking at those two words, you know that if you're reacting to something, you're always going to be slower because you have to, information comes in, you process it, and then you react. Like that takes way too much time. Your body running and impact and all of that is happening way too fast that your nervous system pre-anticipates what's going to be encountered. That's the only way that you can run efficiently and not get injured or properly you know, load and unload impact forces through the elasticity of the tissue. You know, that's critical. The second thing kind of related around that is where I start talking about barefoot stimulation and foot stimulation is you, the, your movement patterns are only as good as the information you bring in. So that's where shoes and barefoot stimulation and all that good stuff that we often talk about is so critical because if you don't bring in enough information or you don't bring in accurate information because of your shoes or something, then your loading response is not going to be accurate. That's when you also get injured. Yeah, I tell people it's like you're, you're late to the party. Exactly. And so since you brought that up, I think it's a good time to talk about, and we beat this to death a million times, and I just can't help myself. As a matter of fact, I did a clinic in Vermont uh, a couple weeks ago, and a couple of the people that came to the clinic were wearing these big hokas. Uh-huh. I actually had one of the girls throw her shoes away. Her, I didn't tell her to throw them away, <laughs> but she did. And she ended up actually doing the clinic barefoot or in flip-flops because she just was feeling this tension <laughs> that I was putting out because I was so dead set against this blocking 
of this afferent information that mm-hmm. the body's trying to obtain in order to make appropriate and timely decisions. Exactly. Without even trying to sound like a barefoot advocate, and when I say barefoot advocate, I'm talking about as a runner. Uh, I have to tell you that recently I took some people out on pavement to run a mile barefoot that had never done it before, and nor had I, for that matter, purposely gone out to run barefoot on pavement for a given distance. Mm -hmm. I was a little apprehensive at first, and as it turned out that about a quarter of the mile in, I actually started to find a relationship with ground contact that kind of surprised me. Uh And it actually got better the longer I went. I should also share with you that one of the women that was running with me is turning 73 years old. And she was actually running faster than everyone else and actually enjoyed the ride. Now, having said all that, I'm not an advocate of running on unnatural surfaces barefoot because it's just a crapshoot. You never know when, in fact, you're going to get injured by some sharp object or what have you. But I am absolutely an advocate of people running barefoot on natural surfaces occasionally to reignite the relationship with this feedback mechanism, to to retrain this whole neural response, what you refer to as neuromechanical feedback mechanisms, right? Yeah. Am I paying attention or what? Yeah, no, you You are. (laughs) Yeah, you you have to have that information coming in. I mean, it's to to kind of simply put it, if you bring in craft, you put out craft. Right. I mean, that's the easiest way for someone to understand that. And, or if I'm only giving you, and this is the big thing with, People who don't do barefoot movements or aren't in minimal shoes or aren't tuned in to their feet is they don't know any difference. So to them, that is normal to not have information coming from their meat, from their feet and create motor patterns and stabilization without that information to them is normal. Once you start doing barefoot movement, which I know that you can totally vouch for, and obviously everyone who's listening who does barefoot movement, and you start to experience, and you're like, holy shit, I've been missing this information, you can't go back. Like, I can't wear, like, thick New Balance shoes. Like, I just, I can't. I can't even wear Nike Breeze anymore. They're too thick for me. And you then kind of, like, what you don't know that you don't know, you... Right. Are, are um, right, and it's actually kind of sad when you think about it. You yeah. know, it's like people don't know. By the way, I coach people internationally, people I may never meet. And, mm-hmm. and commonly what happens with people that I don't meet, I'm helping them to transition away from what I'd like to call inappropriate gait patterns. The solution I provide them with is to take their shoes off, get on a grassy field, and occasionally run barefoot. You would think that initially you'd think, wow, he wants me to run barefoot and I'm injured? I don't have that protection I used to have, Mm -hmm. and that seems to be inappropriate. I've had people testify to me that in the course of you know, engaging some barefoot running during the week on natural surfaces, injuries go away, like, really fast. Mm-hmm. Even plantar fasciitis. I'm, people that are having all these issues, it's, they're just not landing properly. And given the natural opportunity to have these devices and this afferent feedback start to become more apparent, they self-correct. Oh, I mean, that's a huge part of it. Um, it's... I think people get too, like, I don't know, people are kind of weak that they want, like, you know, the, the orthotic or the support or the injection or the, you know, whatever, not understanding that the body is very resilient. And if you just train it the right way or feed it the information, like what you're speaking about, some of the barefoot simulations throughout the week, that you get stronger or a lot of your injuries go away, it's, it, it's, you got to give the body more credit than what it is, um, which is kind of funny that even podiatrists, most podiatrists are kind of crazy, but that's another <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you know, they, they'll actually say, like, no, 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 like, you have to wear supportive shoes and orthotics because of the weight of our body and gravity on this concrete and these unnatural surfaces, everybody's foot is going to collapse and then the world is just going to end. And, like, that's what they make it sound like. Where it's like, we were not born with shoes on. Like, if your arch was not designed to support itself, you, you would be a baby with little orthotics coming out. Like, it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like, give the body a little bit more credit. You know, like, I don't get, I don't freak out when a patient gets a fracture or gets a certain infection. I'm like, the body's going to heal itself. Like, you got to give the body more credit than what it is, you know? And so that kind of goes along with what you're saying of, like, Give your body, challenge your body. If you challenge your body the appropriate way with barefoot stimulation, it ultimately becomes stronger. It's, it's a survival strategy of the human body. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm telling you, it's like my day job is going around and working with people and helping them to find this relationship with the ground, not just from a standpoint of injury prevention, but performance orientation. Because if you're landing badly often, I have here's, – here's the way it works. I have people that I, I say their strength-to-weight ratio is such that their body is very forgiving. They get away with a lot. And it's like people think, gosh, this guy's bold. You know, they look at this fat old man saying, you run like shit. And here's a guy maybe running a 230 marathon. And, in fact, his running gait is just atrocious where if he was to change and correct and improve upon the way he's running, his likelihood of able, being able to run more often with less injury, with greater force production, greater stride length, all of that exists when you're in harmony with the, the whole systematic approach to ground force and the elastic energy you can harvest. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, yep. I actually, I, I like that harmony. Like I call it, it's like a symbiotic relationship or it's a homeostatic, you know, I, but I like the, that harmony as well. I think that's a great way to look at it. Well, and that some people have a hard time understanding where the ground contact has anything to do with core facilitation. They think that they're, for, for them to work their core, they have to get like in a supine position and do some kind of isometric or even changing in range of motion contractions off the ground where they're basically isolating movement patterns in their core, to me, that's just useless. I mean, you could have a really strong abdominal region that is disconnected from the rest of your body and have no functionality whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, I do activations on the floor. I think that's a great way to activate and start to kind of like slap away the core. But then ultimately, I do agree, you have to get standing up, which is one thing and getting introduced to gravity and then your feet and your core are connected during dynamic movement so it's a coordinated reaction of how your core works it's not you know i'm going to isometrically brace and then kind of crunch in certain ways or if i'm doing a plank like i, I still like planks and things like that but i feel like they should be in almost like a flow so I never have people hold the plane for like a minute or five minutes. Like I'm awesome. I hold my plane for five minutes. Like that's not, that means nothing. Like you're probably going to get injured more than, you know, the 80 year old who doesn't even work out then because you're, you're not building an appropriate style of strength that actually transfers to dynamic movement. So if you're doing floor based stuff, I think that it should be either in an activation way or it should be in a flow and you're finding a, a relaxation and a stiffening, like a dance, just like your, your body does with the ground throughout that movement. Well, another thing that, that comes to mind while we're talking about this and speaking of the core region, one of the things that bothers me a lot is that it's not uncommon where a person might go to a physical therapist because they've got a running-related injury and the first thing that comes out of their mouth is they start talking about glute instability and they start getting them on the ground doing clamshells and things like this to try to isolate the glute med to try mm -hmm. to get that firing again. And then they'll go right back out and land poorly, which puts them in a, a very untenable position, unstable, and then they reactivate the injury. And I just tell them, I said, you could spend 
10 minutes on the ground doing these exercises that are going to be of little or no use to you if you spend 90 minutes running badly. And so people will ask me, what's the best core or glute exercise for a runner? And my comment, and they almost think that I'm being funny, but I'm not. I said the best exercise you can do, reduce the injuries at the glute or instability in the hips, is proper running mechanics. Get Mm -hmm. the foot closer to your center of mass, get stable, and develop force production. And every time you make contact with the ground appropriately, you got that floor-to-core sequencing, right? And so you're ultimately creating a very synergistic or, like I said, harmonious contractile force from the ground right up into your core. Yes, which is, I mean, that's, like you said, that's how it works. So you have to, it has to be specific to the movement or match what you're doing. Um, and that, that really is the most effective way. So it's not, you know, that's where you could be like, oh, okay, you, you see bodybuilders who have like a six pack, but then their stomach sticks out and then they get a herniated disc. Like there's, it's a very different way of training it. What you said as far as your foot-to-core connection, that's really how the core has to be trained. So getting up right away and just simply running barefoot, doing the stimulation with proper running mechanics, that in itself could be their core training. I, I agree 100% with you. Cool. Jeez, I like it when I'm not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so look, I, I want to. So l- l- let me just kind of take this to kind of a summary for a minute before we go to the next phase here. Okay. So what we're basically discussing is the fact that there is a weighted run, and in the course of doing the proper movement patterns, this harmonious sequence of events is going to occur, and you're going to become stable. And stability is key to offsetting the potential for injury and actually creating force production. We're good with that. Yes. All right. And then we need to get back to garnering this afferent feedback from the ground so that our body becomes more in harmony. I'm doing it for you again. With the ground force, so we're able to allow the body to contract or deal with ground forces in a timely manner because this surprise that we get when the feedback is absent is where all the disruption comes from and the injuries are most prominent, right? Correct. All right. Now, so we're suggesting that it would be better to be closer to the ground with whatever, I mean, in these races, you've got to wear shoes. But you can't just decide one day that you've been in this mattress of a shoe to drop off into this very, very minimal shoe and keep pounding the ground inappropriately and try to keep up with the same volume that you had in the past. Because just that transition alone is going to throw your body for a loop, and there's potential for all sorts of new injuries. So you need to kind of find the ground eventually and then make your way to it probably gradually, I think. And I'm going to let you give feedback on that. But I'd like to see people, like people will ask me all the time, I'm in an 11 millimeter drop, and I'm looking at going minimal. What do you think I should do? And they're almost waiting for me to say, I want you to go to zero drop. And a lot of times that's not a good thing to tell people, especially in the absence of me knowing what their, their potential range of motion is around that joint. So if you touch on that for me just a little bit. Yeah, so whenever I'm guiding a patient on transitioning um, different levels of heel-toe drop or different levels of support in the shoe, maybe different levels of cushion, is obviously doing it gradual, same thing as what you're saying. Um, Sometimes we think we need to have like gross changes, like large changes for it to to be a lot, but your body's very like micro-sensitive. So micro-changes still do a very big shift to the nervous system and to the body. So I would agree that, okay, if you're in an 11 millimeter drop, to go down to like an eight millimeter dropper, you know, you're slowly incrementally decreasing it. But there's other characteristics within shoes that you can take away. If your shoe now has a heel counter, stay at the same heel toe drop, but take away the heel counter. Or if your shoe has a shank throughout it, then you could take away the shank. Um, you could choose one that has less cushion. So there's, there's features of, of the shoes that you can kind of incrementally decrease. Just going from an 11 millimeter to a zero drop, but it still has a, a heel counter. Well, now you, you still don't have the complete freedom of movement that you need. 
So understanding all those aspects. There's one aspect to a shoe that I think is, to me, is the marker of like a really good shoe from a natural movement perspective is if you can take a shoe and wring it out like a rag, like the long way, a lot of the Nike ads would fold the shoe or like roll the shoe like a, a sandwich or whatever, I don't know. Um, kind of the, the... A wrap. Back of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a burrito. I don't know. Um, I think everyone knows exactly the ads that they have. That's not the way that you want to think of the shoe. That's showing like, okay, it doesn't have a shank throughout. But, okay, who cares to some degree? Because the foot is a rotational structure. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and what I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. But before I get started, I want to give a shout out to Human Octane. If you're the kind of person who pushes the limit, then you've got to check out Human Octane Apparel. Training and racing apparel designed by OCR athletes, and these guys just get it. Everything they make dries lightning fast, has zippered pockets, is abrasion resistant in high contact areas without bulky padding. I've gotten to know these guys, and trust me, they're going to out-innovate the competition when it comes to OCR gear. Check them out at humanoctane.com. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. All right, here we are once again. I've been working really, really hard to finally get Dr. Emily back on the show with me. Those of you that have followed my podcast know that she's my go-to gal when it comes to anything to do with structural integrity, ground contact, foot, anything to do with effective movement patterns. And Emily is a podiatrist. She is the founder of Evidence-Based Fitness Academy. There, I mean, we can go for 15 minutes just talking about all the things that Emily's doing, but suffice to say, it's a limited amount of time that we have, so what I want to do is just go right ahead and say, Emily, say hello to folks. Hi, welcome. Thank you uh, for having me on your podcast again. It's always an honor. Well, it was interesting. You know, we, we spoke of it early on, but it's been five years that you and I have been going back and forth. I know. It makes me feel old. <laughs> Dude, don't even start. <laughs> you know, by the way, if you want to, I'm heading to Mexico in December to celebrate my 65th birthday. Oh, nice. No, not nice. You're supposed to, people say, usually when you tell people you're getting that old, instead of saying, hey, happy birthday, they say, oh, congratulations. <laughs> that you made it. Yeah. Used to be they would say things like, oh, congratulations. But now that I'm going to hit 65, they pause. So they go, oh, congratulations. <laughs> it's almost like they're dumbfounded. They don't know really what the proper answer would be to that. Uh, or uh, Anyway. So, Emily, as we discussed prior to going live here, what I'm hoping to accomplish here in the next little bit is I want to talk about the sequence of events that occurs when we initiate ground contact as we run and what would be the appropriate thing to do. Or we, we spoke of it as being the preferred thing to do. I'm not even going to talk about appropriate. Let's talk about preferred thing to do. And I believe, and you can slap me around if you need to, but I believe that there is a better way to make ground contact when we're running. And I think ultimately in the course of making ground contact in this preferred method, we can create more generation of force, more power, and also become more stable and resistant to injury. Would you agree that, that's, that there's a place like that? Absolutely. That's, okay. that's really the, the key to running injury-free or prevention running-related injuries is that relationship between the ground and the, the body, the foot. Okay. Right. Now, you corrected me, and see, this is why I keep coming back to you over the last five years is because I'm a little thick. It takes me a little while to learn things, but um, you had done a good job clearing some things up for me today that I had not thought about. Um, because, and I think a lot of people, when they think about 
what occurs when they are running or landing. They're thinking in, in terms of contractile forces. And the contractile forces people typically speak of are muscular contractile forces. So in other yep. words, and you corrected me, the eccentric loading, which I would expect it to have been elongation of musculature and then ultimately isometric contraction where things stabilize and then the shortening phase where you are accelerating and pushing off the ground. So changes in muscle. And you had corrected me by telling me that in fact what is occurring is the muscles are isometric through this whole series of sequencing. And what really is changing in length is the myofascia, which is where the change in length is really occurring. So could you kind of do a better job with what I just said and explain what in fact we're talking about? Sure. So I think everyone who's listening often thinks of, okay, we when we're running, jumping, dynamic, you're going to be decelerating. And then when you decelerate, essentially what you're doing is you're storing the potential energy for then the acceleration, which is the next phase. So typically we think of deceleration as eccentrics which is what you were saying. So we're going through an eccentric, which is a lengthening phase, and then you're going into a concentric, which is your power or your shortening phase. And so people think that that's kind of the, the, the way that you want to train for running, jumping, walking, dynamic, rhythmic, that's the key thing here, movement. However, what research shows is that the muscles are actually contracting isometrically, so they're staying the same length, and anytime you create an isometric contraction, there's no shortening or lengthening of the muscle fibers. You're essentially creating a stiffening response and an increase in tension. And then what's moving and allowing the lengthening and the shortening that we typically think of our muscles doing is actually the fascia. So why that's important to understand is that you have to train your muscles then for more of an isometric quick stiffening, and then you have to train your fascia to be a rubber band. And that is the most important thing. And the, the rubber band and the elasticity and kind of think like a kangaroo jumping around, that's really the fascia that's allowing them or us to be very springy. And it's actually not housed within the muscles. It, it's pivotal to changing your programming or your training to understanding that concept. Right. Now, what I believe to be the case, and, and you really opened my mind this morning to a lot of thoughts, but I, essentially I think I was on the right path. It's just that I was thinking in terms of the musculature and the fascia operating as one, where in fact they're not. They're, they're operating independent of, of each other. So in other words, as you suggested and what I've learned from some of the things I've read that you've written and some of the work of uh, Dr. Nig. Uh, this mm -hmm. muscle tuning theory is essentially all about how the muscles are isometrically contracting to dampen the, the vibrations that occur when we make ground contact and the elasticity of the fascia is what's allowing us to, to actually move the joints, right? Yes, exactly. So if you do not have sufficient stiffness in the muscle or the isometric, you're, you're, you're not allowing the fascia to, to move. Like the fascia needs to be on a stiff, stable base to slide almost like a sleeve over the muscle. Um, so they, they, they kind of dance among each other. And most injuries that I see in my office with runners um, and endurance athletes and such is directly related to insufficient stiffness, and then they stress the way that their fascia acts like a rubber band. Right. Now, and what kind of bears truth to all of this is that you never really talk about muscle injuries. It's always uh, connective tissue disorders, right? So there's a, a plantar fasciitis, for example, or the IT band. All, all this is connective tissue. It's really not got to do with the muscle, right? But it, exactly. So that's what supports this theory by Dr. Nig and this approach of looking at um, impact injuries or just the, the training of the loading response 
because of exactly what you said. To me, that just kind of validates that exactly what we're saying is like, ah, that's on point. Makes sense. Now, so getting back to the sequence of events and the way you would make contact with the ground, I teach people that they should initiate ground contact. You know, where it gets kind of edgy is when you talk about forefoot to midfoot. People get confused with that. But let's just, for the sake of argument, say the front of your foot. And so what happens is as you're starting to find the ground and then you're starting to take on load, you're actually causing a stretch reflex, right, up through the, the connective tissue. And all the while, according to what you're saying, is there's this isometric contraction in the musculature to dampen the vibration upon ground contact. And then that energy that's being received from this lengthening of the fascia gets to a place where once your foot is entirely in contact with the ground, your knee is pretty well just in line with or even ahead of your great toe. Now you have good ankle flexion. So this whole system down there, I guess it's the subtalar joint, is kind of locking down. You're getting stable. This is what you refer to as foot-to-core sequencing, right? You get to this place where this loading effect from the ground rides all the way up into your hip, and you have this column of stability you've created, which sets you up for a very opportune moment to create this generate or harvest this generation of elastic energy to create force. Yes, exactly. And what I want to add to that is that I want listeners to understand that this has to be happening before your foot even strikes the ground. So, Excuse me for cutting you off. But I wanted to tell you that this is the thing that I had the hardest time wrapping my head around for years. You told me this, and I'm like, okay, yeah, fine, sure. And I was having a hard time with it. I'm not going to lie to you. But since, and even recently, I have been very vocal in explaining that this does, in fact, occur. And my analogy that I use when I try to explain this to people, I'll have somebody standing in front of me in group. And I'll say, okay, I'm getting ready to punch you in the stomach. And just that information that's being taken on already begins the sequence of events. The person will start to contract the, the musculature and their abdominal wall to prepare for this impending impact, right? Yep. So it's kind of like that, right? Yeah, no, it is, it's exactly that, that there's always a anticipation of what's going to happen. And... How how I get people to understand this a little bit more is, you know, kind of two things is that you, you need to always be in control of your environment. Your body, your nervous system wants to be in control of your environment. So it's either considered your preactive or your anticipatory, or you would be reactive. And just looking at those two words, you know that if you're reacting to something, you're always going to be slower because you have to, information comes in, you process it, and then you react. Like that takes way too much time. Your body running and impact and all of that is happening way too fast that your nervous system pre-anticipates what's going to be encountered. That's the only way that you can run efficiently and not get injured or properly you know, load and unload impact forces through the elasticity of the tissue. You know, that's critical. The second thing kind of related around that is where I start talking about barefoot stimulation and foot stimulation is your movement patterns are only as good as the information you bring in. So that's where shoes and barefoot stimulation and all that good stuff that we often talk about is so critical because if you don't bring in enough information or you don't bring in accurate information because of your shoes or something, then your loading response is not going to be accurate. That's when you also get injured. Yeah, I tell people it's like you're, you're late to the party. Exactly. And so since you brought that up, I think it's a good time to talk about, and we beat this to death a million times, and I just can't help myself. As a matter of fact, I did a clinic in Vermont uh, a couple weeks ago, and a couple of the people that came to the clinic were wearing these big hokas. Uh-huh. I actually had one of the girls throw her shoes away. Her, I didn't tell her to throw them away, <laughs> but she did. And she ended up actually doing the clinic barefoot or in flip-flops because she just was feeling this 
attention <laughs> that I was putting out because I was so dead set against this blocking of this effort information that mm-hmm. the body's trying to obtain in order to make appropriate and timely decisions. Exactly. Without even trying to sound like a barefoot advocate, and when I say barefoot advocate, I'm talking about as a runner. Right. Uh, I have to tell you that recently I took some people out on pavement to run a mile barefoot that had never done it before, and nor had I, for that matter, purposely gone out to run barefoot on pavement for a given distance. Mm-hmm. I was a little apprehensive at first, and as it turned out that about a quarter of the mile in, I actually started to find a relationship with ground contact that kind of surprised me. Uh-huh. And it actually got better the longer I went. I should also share with you that one of the women that was running with me is turning 73 years old. And she was actually running faster than everyone else and actually enjoyed the ride. Now, having said all that, I'm not an advocate of running on unnatural surfaces barefoot because it's just a crapshoot. You never know when, in fact, you're going to get injured by some sharp object or what have you. But I am absolutely an advocate of people running barefoot on natural surfaces occasionally to reignite the relationship with this feedback mechanism, to to retrain this whole neural response, what you refer to as neuromechanical feedback mechanisms, right? Yeah. Am I paying yeah. attention or what? Yeah, no, you good job. <laughs> you are. <laughs> but the, yeah, the, you you have to have that information coming in. I mean, it's to to kind of simply put it, if you bring in crap, you put out crap. Right. I mean, that's the easiest way for someone to understand that. And or if I'm only giving you, and this is the big thing with. People who don't do barefoot movements or aren't in minimal shoes or aren't tuned in to their feet is they don't know any difference. So to them, that is normal. To not have information coming from their meat, from their feet and create motor patterns and stabilization without that information, to them is normal. Once you start doing barefoot movement, which I know that you can totally vouch for, and obviously everyone who's listening who does barefoot movement, and you start to experience, and you're like, holy shit, I've been missing this information, you can't go back. Like, I can't wear, like, thick New Balance shoes. Like, I just, I can't. I can't even wear Nike Breeze anymore. They're too thick for me. And it, you then kind of, like, what you don't know that you don't know, you right. are, are unexposed to. Um, right, and it's actually kind of sad when you think about it. You yeah. know, it's like people don't know. By the way, I coach people internationally, people I may never meet. And, mm-hmm. and commonly what happens with people that I don't meet, I'm helping them to transition away from what I'd like to call inappropriate gait patterns. The solution I provide them with is to take their shoes off, get on a grassy field, and occasionally run barefoot. You would think that initially you'd think, wow, he wants me to run barefoot and I'm injured? I don't have that protection I used to have, Mm -hmm. and that seems to be inappropriate. I've had people testify to me that in the course of you know, engaging some barefoot running during the week on natural surfaces, injuries go away, like, really fast. Mm-hmm. Even plantar fasciitis. I'm, people that are having all these issues, it's, they're just not landing properly. And given the natural opportunity to have these devices and this afferent feedback start to become more apparent, they self-correct. Oh, I mean, that's a huge part of it. Um, it's I think people get too, like, I don't know, people are kind of weak that they want, like, you know, the, the orthotic or the support or the injection or the, you know, whatever, not understanding that the body is very resilient. And if you just train it the right way or feed it the information, like what you're speaking about, some of the barefoot simulations throughout the week, that you get stronger or a lot of your injuries go away, it's, it, it's, you got to give the body more credit than what it is, um, which is kind of funny that even podiatrists, 
most podiatrists are kind of crazy, but that's another conversation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they'll actually say, like, no, 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 like, you have to wear supportive shoes and orthotics because the weight of our body and gravity on this concrete and these unnatural surfaces, everybody's foot is going to collapse and then the world is just going to end. And, like, that's what they make it sound like. Where it's like, we were not born with shoes on. Like, if your arch was not designed to support itself, you, you would be a baby with little orthotics coming out. Like, it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like, give the body a little bit more credit. You know, like, I don't get, I don't freak out when a patient gets a fracture or gets a certain infection. I'm like, the body's going to heal itself. Like, you got to give the body more credit than what it is, you know? And so that kind of goes along with what you're saying of, like, Give your body, challenge your body. If you challenge your body the appropriate way with barefoot stimulation, it ultimately becomes stronger. It's, it's a survival strategy of the human body. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm telling you, it's like my day job is going around and working with people and helping them to find this relationship with the ground, not just from a standpoint of injury prevention, but performance orientation. Because if you're landing badly often, I have here's, – here's the way it works. I have people that I, I say their strength-to-weight ratio is such that their body is very forgiving. They get away with a lot. And it's like people think, gosh, this guy's bold. You know, they look at this fat old man saying, you run like shit. And here's a guy maybe running a 230 marathon. And, in fact, his running gait is just atrocious where if he was to change and correct and improve upon the way he's running, his likelihood of able, being able to run more often with less injury, with greater force production, greater stride length, all of that exists when you're in harmony with the, the whole systematic approach to ground force and the elastic energy you can harvest. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yep. I actually, I, I like that harmony. Like I call it, it's like a symbiotic relationship or it's a homeostatic, you know, I, but I like the, that harmony as well. I think that's a great way to look at it. Well, and that some people have a hard time understanding where the ground contact has anything to do with core facilitation. They think that they're, for, for them to work their core, they have to get like in a supine position and do some kind of isometric or even changing in range of motion contractions off the ground where they're basically isolating movement patterns in their core, to me, that's just useless. I mean, you could have a really strong abdominal region that is disconnected from the rest of your body and have no functionality whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, I do activations on the floor. I think that's a great way to activate and start to kind of like slap away the core. But then ultimately, I do agree, you have to get standing up, which is one thing and getting introduced to gravity and then your feet and your core are connected during dynamic movement so it's a coordinated reaction of how your core works it's not you know i'm going to isometrically brace and then kind of crunch in certain ways or if i'm doing a plank like i still like planks and things like that but i feel like they should be in almost like a flow so I never have people hold a plane for like a minute or five minutes. Like I'm awesome. I hold my plane for five minutes. Like that's not, that means nothing. Like you're probably going to get injured more than, you know, the 80 year old doesn't even work out then because you're, you're not building an appropriate style of strength that actually transfers to dynamic movement. So if you're doing floor based stuff, I think that it should be either in an activation way or it should be in a flow and you're finding a, a relaxation and a stiffening, like a dance, just like your, your body does with the ground throughout that movement. Well, another thing that, that comes to mind while we're talking about this and speaking of the core region, one of the things that bothers me a lot is that it's not uncommon where a person might go to a physical therapist because they've got a running-related injury and the first thing that comes out of their mouth is they start talking about glute instability and they start getting them on the ground doing clamshells and things like this to try to isolate the glute med to try mm-hmm. to get that firing again. And then they'll go right back out and land poorly, which puts them in a, in a very untenable position, unstable, 
and then they reactivate the injury. And I just tell them, I said, you could spend 10 minutes on the ground doing these exercises that are going to be of little or no use to you if you spend 90 minutes running badly. And so people will ask me, what's the best core or glute exercise for a runner? And my comment, and they almost think that I'm being funny, but I'm not. I said, the best exercise you can do, reduce the injuries at the glute or instability in the hips, is proper running mechanics. Get mm -hmm. the foot closer to your center of mass, get stable, and develop force production. And every time you make contact with the ground appropriately, you got that floor-to-core sequencing, right? And then, so you're ultimately creating a very synergistic or, like I said, harmonious contractile force from the ground right up into your core. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's, like you said, that's how it works. So you have to, it has to be specific to the movement or match what you're doing. Um, and that, that really is the most effective way. So it's not, you know, that's where you could be like, oh, okay, you, you see bodybuilders who have like a six pack, but then their stomach sticks out and then they get a herniated disc. Like there's, it's a very different way of training it. What you said as far as your foot to core connection, that's really how the core has to be trained. So getting up right away and just simply running barefoot, doing the this, this stimulation with proper running mechanics, that in itself could be their core training. I, I agree 100% with you. Cool. Jeez, I like it when I'm not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so look, I want to. So let, let me just kind of take this to kind of a summary for a minute before we go to the next phase here. Okay. So what we're basically discussing is the fact that there is a way to run, and in the course of doing the proper movement patterns, this harmonious sequence of events is going to occur, and you're going to become stable. And stability is key to offsetting the potential for injury and actually creating force production. We're good with that. Yes. All right, and then we need to get back to garnering this afferent feedback from the ground so that our body becomes more in harmony, I'm doing it for you again, with you. the ground force so we're able to allow the body to contract or deal with ground forces in a timely manner because this surprise that we get when the feedback is absent is where all the disruption comes from and the injuries are most prominent, right? Correct. All right. Now, so we're suggesting that it would be better to be closer to the ground with whatever, I mean, in these races, you've got to wear shoes, but you can't just decide one day that you've been in this mattress of a shoe to drop off into this very, very minimal shoe and keep pounding the ground inappropriately and try to keep up with the same volume that you had in the past. Because just that transition alone is going to throw your body for a loop, and there's potential for all sorts of new injuries. So you need to kind of find the ground eventually and then make your way to it probably gradually, I think. And I'm going to let you give feedback on that. But I'd like to see people, like people will ask me all the time, I'm in an 11 millimeter drop, and I'm looking at going minimal. What do you think I should do? And they're almost waiting for me to say, I want you to go to zero drop. And a lot of times that's not a good thing to tell people, especially in the absence of me knowing what their, their potential range of motion is around that joint. So if you'd touch on that for me just a little bit. Yeah, so whenever I'm guiding a patient on transitioning um, different levels of heel-toe drop or different levels of support in the shoe, maybe different levels of cushion, is obviously doing it gradual, same thing as what you're saying. Um, sometimes we think we need to have like gross changes, like large changes for it to, to be a lot, but your body is very like micro-sensitive. So micro-changes still do a very big shift to the nervous system and to the body. So I would agree that, okay, if you're in an 11 millimeter drop, to go down to like an eight millimeter dropper, you know, you're slowly incrementally decreasing it. But there's other characteristics within shoes that you can take away. If your shoe now has a heel counter, stay at the same heel toe drop, but take away the heel counter. Or if your shoe has a shank throughout it, then you could take away the shank. Um, you could choose one that has less cushion. So there's, there's features of, of the shoes that you can kind of incrementally decrease. Just going from an 11 millimeter to a zero drop, but it still has a, 
a heel counter, well, now you, you still don't have the complete freedom of movement that you need. So understanding all those aspects. There's one aspect to a shoe that I think is, to me, it's the marker of like a really good shoe from a natural movement perspective, is if you can take a shoe and wring it out like a rag, like the long way, a lot of the Nike ads would fold the shoe or like roll the shoe like a, a sandwich or whatever, I don't know, um, kind of the, the a wrap. Back of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a burrito. I don't know. Um, I think everyone knows exactly the abs that they have. That's not the way that you want to think of the shoe. That's showing like, okay, it doesn't have a shank throughout it. But, okay, who cares to some degree? Because the foot is a rotational structure and a spiraling structure. People don't think of the foot as a spiral. But your foot just spirals. So if you take the shoe the long way and just rotate it like a rag, the more that you can kind of wring out your shoe, the more freedom of movement of the Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.